And if you have a copy of the scriptures, we are in Luke 17, and the children are dismissed to Children's Church. Luke 17. I'm going to read verses 7 through 10, which is our text this afternoon. Jesus speaking to his disciples in verse 7, he says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, what good news we have heard up to this point. We have sung good news. We have heard good news read. We have heard good news preached at communion time. And now, once again, Lord, good news through this message. We thank You, Lord, that You have made Yourself known to us. We thank You, Lord, that You are the Master and we are the slave and that You are a good and wise and kind and benevolent Master. May we be faithful in our service to You. And as I pray, as we go through this text, Lord, that You would make Your grace seen, even through a difficult passage, that we would see the beauty and wonder of relationship to You and how it is an honor for us to be servants of the Master because of the benevolence of our Master. So, Father, at this time, please bless us, Lord. Please help us to focus on what is before us. Please keep us from distraction. Please bless our children as they are instructed in Your Word. And we commit all of this to You now in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible uses various metaphors to describe our relationship to God in Christ. He is the shepherd, we are the sheep. He is the vine, we are the branches. He is the father, we are his children. He is the head, we are the body. He is the bridegroom, we are the bride. He is the potter, we are the clay. And each one of these metaphors depicts a different aspect of our relationship to God. I don't know if you've ever considered that or not. He is not only the potter and we only the clay, as if that comprehensively describes everything about relationship to God. Rather, that describes only one aspect of relationship to God. It emphasizes that He is our Maker, He is our Creator, He is our Sovereign. It elevates God to His proper place, revealing Him as the source of our very lives, and it also rightly describes who we are in relationship to Him. We are merely clay. 
lest we try to elevate ourselves. But the imagery of the potter and the clay reveals only one aspect of relationship to God, not all of it. Consider the metaphor of the bridegroom and bride. Our relationship to God in Christ is covenantal in that we are joined to Him in a special kind of commitment. Our relationship to Him is one where we place Him at the center and we promise to love Him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, forsaking all others, even putting His will above our own. Or consider the shepherd and the sheep. As the shepherd, He looks after all of our needs. Or the vine and the branches. He is the source of of spiritual life And if we are cut off from the vine, we have no life in and of ourselves. So you get the idea? So through these metaphors of who God is and who we are, we see different aspects or different facets of our relationship to Him. And yet there's another one that we find in our text today. And I would guess it is the least favorite metaphor that the Bible uses to describe this relationship. The master and the slave. While it may be our least favorite, it is probably the most common metaphor in the New Testament. In fact, I counted nine of the parables of Jesus use this imagery of master and slave. God or Jesus is the master. The disciple is the slave. And yet, in this picture of relationship to God, it doesn't usually give us the warm fuzzies like the other ones do. Now, I say slave intentionally and not servant or bondservants because the original Greek uses the word doulos. And doulos according to the Greek dictionary, means one who is a slave in the sense of becoming the property of an owner. In fact, the Greek New Testament has at least six different words for servant, and doulos is not one of them. And none of those words are found in our text. It is doulos all the way through. And so, I am going to be referring to that word in our text as as slave. The theological dictionary of the New Testament describes doulos in this way. The meaning is so unequivocal and self-contained that it is superfluous to give examples of the individual terms or to trace the history of the group. The emphasis here is always on serving as a slave. Hence, we have a service which is not a matter of choice for the one who renders it. He has to perform it whether he likes it or not because he is subject as a slave to an alien will, to the will of his owner. Now, if the vine is a metaphor for supplying life to the branches and the potter is a metaphor for God as the creator and source of the clay, what might be communicated through this picture of Jesus being the master and you being the slave? How about absolute obedience, absolute allegiance, and absolute servitude? Slaves are bound by the will of another, and our relationship 
to Christ as our master is one of being bound to do his will and not our own. That is what is being presented here. In verses 7 through 10, Jesus teaches a parable about what your attitude ought to be as you live in relationship to the master. This is about your attitude. It's a two-pointer. I'm naming the first point. The disposition of your duty. How do you see your service to Christ? Do you see God as owing you something? Or do you recognize your service to Him as your duty? Now this parable about the master and slave, unlike the others, is a little unique because Jesus does not present Himself as the Master right out of the gate. In fact, He does it a little bit differently. He puts the disciples in the position of Master, probably so that they might see the point a little more clearly. Notice in verse 7, He says, Will any one of you who has a slave, plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Now, the mention of slavery in the 21st century usually makes our hair stand on end because we think of the African slave trade in the early Americas and other parts of the world. And yet, what we're dealing with here is first century slavery, and it's vastly different than that kind of chattel slavery from your history books. Slavery was very much a part of their economy, and there were a number of reasons a person would wind up a slave, and some of them were good reasons. In fact, the primary reason would be so that you could avoid starvation and death. So, you are in a position of being destitute, you are impoverished, you do not have a home, you do not have anything to eat, and you could sell yourself into slavery so that you could survive, so that you could have a roof over your head, so that you could have consistent meals. The kidnapping and enslaving of people is totally unlike what the Bible describes here with slavery. Slavery would be a very familiar part of their society, and of course, Jesus uses a very familiar image to communicate a spiritual truth. Something about your relationship to God. So he puts the, the disciples in the position of master, and he says, will any one of you who has a slave be like this or be like that? I think he puts them in that situation because they all know how this relationship works. The slave is completely indebted to the master. He is without any privileges. He does not clock out at a certain time when his shift is over. He does not come in from working in the fields and have the master serving him upon his return. That's not how this relationship works. So he asks a question in verse 8. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Now the point Jesus makes here is obvious. 
the slave would never come in from working in the field and then expect to be served himself. He would never come in and expect the master to sit him down and to prepare dinner for him and applaud him for working so hard during the day. It's meant to be a silly picture because everyone knows it would be a reversal of roles and that's not the kind of arrangement you have. The slave always meets the needs of the master before he meets his own. Verse 10, he says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves, we have only done what was our duty. So the picture is self-explanatory. I think this is one of the clearest parables of Jesus. In fact, in my commentaries, there was not many pages on this describing it at all. A master does not serve a slave, nor does a slave expect commendation from a master for doing the work that he's commanded to do. He is indebted to the master. The master is not indebted to him. And the point that Jesus makes here is that we, as his disciples, are never to have an attitude of, look at all the things I do for God but rather to have an attitude of sacrifice and service and humility, saying, I'm only doing my duty. Rather than God patting you on the back when you are doing what you're supposed to do, and rather than you puffing yourself up when you're doing what you're supposed to do, you are to recognize that this is your basic duty in the service to your Master, and that's it. So whether you spend your years as a homeschool mom in Fillmore or as a missionary in the Philippines, both of those are callings from God and service to God and only doing what was required of you. Your attitude is to be, I have only done what was my duty. How's the temperature in here? Is it getting cold? Are we good? Most people are good? Okay. I feel comfortable. Usually I'm sweating. So if I feel comfortable, it must be cold in here. This is the disposition or attitude of your duty. Total submission without the expectation of praise or reward. Now that doesn't mean someday there's not going to be praise and reward from the Master. We heard it in the reading already. At the end of the age, the master, after you've done all of your work, he will say to those, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in to your reward. But the emphasis here in this parable is your attitude in your service to Christ now. Whatever you do is not above and beyond what your master requires. You are merely carrying out what you are supposed to do. So the first point the disposition of your duty. The second point, the longer point, the discharge of your duty. We are slaves to the Master. We are to serve Him with our lives and with our strength and with our resources. And there are things that God requires of us as we serve Him. 
And I want to spend the second half of this message asking, what are those things? What is our duty? Now, first, I have to make it abundantly clear that the Christian faith is based upon faith in Christ. As Protestants, we do not believe that our salvation is faith plus works. This is an essential point to preserve the gospel because the Bible clearly and unequivocally teaches salvation is by faith alone, not by works of righteousness that we have done. In fact, one of the key issues of the Protestant Reformation was this relationship between faith and works. And Roman Catholicism presented a distortion of this. They teach that salvation is not based on the merits of Christ alone, but as a cooperation. So, in other words, your works are necessary for salvation. In other words, they believe that grace is important, but they don't believe that grace is sufficient. I've always liked this outline here. A false gospel will always say faith plus works equals salvation. The gospel is faith equals salvation. And yet, it is a salvation that produces works. So if you are in a mindset or in a religion that teaches the first one, that is a false gospel. The works must be there but they are produced by the salvation that is by faith. Or as the Reformers used to say, salvation is by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So I have to make that point because it's absolutely necessary that we don't confuse this in our minds and you leave here thinking, I'm preaching a message about your works. We have been purchased by the Master We have a duty to now serve the Master, but that service does not commend us to the Master. Our service is a response to the Master. You can find this in various places. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. Notice, that, that, that is slave language. You were bought with a price. And what's the response? So glorify God in your body. You are a slave of the Master. You have a duty now to the Master who has purchased you. Of course, the most well-known and clearest probably text, Ephesians 2, 8-10 through For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then we see the relationship that works has in verse 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, the works are the fruit of the salvation. So, 
I wanted to establish that before we ask the question, what kinds of works are we to do? What does the Master require of you so that you might faithfully discharge your duty? In verse 10, Jesus concludes this parable by saying, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Okay, fair enough. We have commandments that we are to do, and that is the duty of God. That is our duty given to us by God. Maybe the Ten Commandments come to mind. Exodus chapter 20, of course, you shall have no other gods before me. Skip down a bit. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Probably the best known commandments in all of the Bible. And yet we know that keeping the commandments does not save us. We are saved by faith in Christ, but we have a duty to now respond to God by upholding His righteous standard. He has revealed His will for us. He calls us to walk in a life of holiness in relationship to Him. And so the commandments are good, not as a way of attaining righteousness, but as a way of living out our relationship to God. Samuel Bolton, the Puritan, 1600, said this, The law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified, and the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified. So we uphold the law or we uphold the commandments of God because of righteousness. Because they are God's holy standard, they reveal His character, and they are given to us so that we may know where the path is. This, of course, includes many commands in the New Testament. We just saw a bunch of these in our Wednesday night Bible study. I will give you a few. Ephesians 4.25 Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Or in Ephesians 5.18 And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And we could add all kinds of New Testament commandments to this. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Turn from evil and do good. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Through love, serve one another. These are all commands and not suggestions. God directs us to do what we ought to do and what we ought not to do as we live out our relationship to Him. So we have a duty to obey His commandments. Now part of the challenge living in this fallen world is to discover the will of the Master when it comes to issues that Scripture does not address. Do you not find that to be a challenge when you are confronted with some moral issue issue where you have to make a decision and Scripture does not address that, and yet you want to be a good slave of the Master and obey and fulfill your duty, and so you feel like sometimes you're in a rock in a hard place. What do you do? 
I'll give you some examples of questions that we are confronted with. Can a Christian practice yoga? I hear that one a lot. Can Christians use birth control? Is smoking a sin? How about movies or television? I remember Chuck Smith, who is the founder of Calvary Chapel, he grew up in the Foursquare Church and movies were forbidden. And many years later, he'd been pastoring for probably 20 years, there was a movie that came out about Billy Graham in the movie theater, and he had some friends in his church convince him, let's all go down and see this movie. And his conscience bothered him so much that 10 minutes into the movie, he got up and left. Because he had been conditioned to think that that was a sin. How about dancing? Many churches in the South particularly think dancing is a sin. How about educating our children? Do we put them in public school, private school, home school? The Bible doesn't give us any instruction there. So Scripture does not address every kind of moral dilemma that you face. There are some issues you need to figure out what is your duty before God so that you might be a faithful slave to your master. There's an entire field of study related to this called Christian ethics and how we discover the will of God and what is required or what are the moral duties of believers when the Scripture is silent on those issues. And so ethicists have come up with three categories. What is morally permissible? What is morally obligatory? And what is morally supererogatory? And I will explain those categories. So, morally permissible. Something that is morally permissible means that one may do it or not do it without incurring any kind of moral guilt. In other words, the Bible does not call it a sin. You may call it, or you've heard Christians call it, a gray area. The Bible does not say anything about this particular thing So we have to figure out if this is righteous or not righteous. Example, the Bible does not say anything about whether a man could have a a vasectomy or not. It's not in the Bible. I looked. Nowhere to be found. And because God does not speak about this, it could be considered morally permissible unless there is a principle of Scripture that is being violated. In other words, the Scripture doesn't speak of this directly, but maybe there's an underlying principle that could be a sin that that's related to. Now, if the Bible doesn't call something a sin, I don't call it a sin. And that's a good practice for you too. If the Bible does not say something is a sin, don't go around calling it a sin. But it's possible there's a larger principle that's being violated, so let's use the vasectomy as an example The Scripture says that children are a blessing from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, what if a man wants to get a vasectomy because he doesn't want children, because he and his wife want to have free time, they want to have disposable income, they want to travel and see the world and do other things. That could be, there could be an underlying sin issue there where this person has the things 
of man in mind and not the things of God. He's not believing the promises of God. He's not centering his life around what is the will of God. And so he might not be carrying out his duty as a faithful slave. But on the other hand, perhaps the man wants a vasectomy because there is a great reproductive risk between his genetics and his wife's genetics. And they know that if they have a child together, it could result in a very sick child who will most likely die, or it could result in endangerment to his wife's health. Because there are genetic combinations between male and female that can only produce sick offspring. And sometimes... Very serious. So if that is the case, he is acting in a way that is morally permissible, and I think there's a larger principle behind there that he is safe from because he is instructed to protect and preserve life, and he wants to protect the life of his family, his wife, and so this would fall under the category of morally permissible. Hopefully I didn't confuse that by giving those two examples, but I just want to state that sometimes... Just because the Bible doesn't say this, 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 you have, to, you have to think more broadly about it. But you're in safe territory, I think, if the Bible does not specifically say something is a sin. The second category that ethicists describe is called morally obligatory. This is an easy one. We've already talked about it. There is a moral command that mandates it or forbids it. These are the examples where a Christian is obligated to do or not to do what God commands. You shall not steal. Or Jesus preached to the masses and He said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is a moral obligation to all people. All people are commanded by God to not steal. All people are commanded by God to repent. Acts 17.30 says, this is when Paul was preaching, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. So, repentance is a morally obligatory uh, category. The third is called morally supererogatory. Now, supererogation or something that is supererogatory is something that goes above and beyond normal duty. An act that is not something you are required to do, but that goes above and beyond what most people are willing to do. For example, in the 1980s, there was a plane that took off from Washington National Airport, and after liftoff, it crashed into the Potomac River And a man, a a heroic man, was swimming around and and rescuing people out of the water and bringing them back to the plane. I guess the plane had scattered people. And on his final trip from rescuing one last person, he died in the process. So this would be considered an act of supererogation. So ethicists teach that if you are in a position to help someone in need... And yet, you are in danger of hurting yourself or you are going to perish if you help that person. You are not morally obligated. I had an 
ethics class in seminary. And another example we talked about a lot was the example of the pregnant woman who has cancer. And so she is told by her doctor, you need to start chemotherapy now or you are going to die. And yet the mother chooses to save the life of her baby by refusing the chemotherapy, knowing that she will die, but she wants to preserve the life of her child. This is an act of, of supererogation. She is not morally required to withhold treatments. If she was withholding, if she received the treatment, she would not be sinning, but it is supererogatory in the sense that she is doing above and beyond what is required, morally speaking. Now, I'll just add a little footnote here. If I can save someone else's endangered life without jeopardizing my own life, moral philosophers will usually say it is my duty to do so. In fact, there are laws in the U.S. called duty to rescue where you become morally obligated if you are in a a position to help somebody or preserve life and you choose not to. And there's no risk, risk to your life. So let's say you're walking by a lake and the water is fairly shallow and there is a child that is drowning and you just keep on walking by when you could easily throw something out to him or go and rescue him. You could be held morally responsible. Now, that's kind of a detour from our passage here, but I want you to be thinking about these things because I want to go back to what Jesus says. Hold on a second. Don't tell me. Oh, you're going to have to look in your Bible for this one. Luke 17.10. So he says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So, after saying all that about Christian ethics and what is morally permissible and morally obligatory and morally supererogatory, I'm going to add a twist now. This is kind of the key point, so pay attention. All of the good works that a Christian might perform, including those of supererogation, will never result in that person doing more than God requires. All of the good works that you might perform, including those that go above and beyond, will never result in you doing more than God requires. While ethicists might come up with these categories for thinking through moral issues, you will never act in such a way that goes beyond your duty. There will never be an act of service that you do for the Master that goes beyond your service to Him. In other words, there are no works of supererogation in the kingdom of God. Consider a couple of verses. John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Super arrogation, I think. Matthew 16, 24 and 25, Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, as slaves of the Master, we are to do anything and everything that God requires of us, even surrendering our own life if necessary. Even being killed by natives in Ecuador, as I mentioned last week with Jim Elliott and the others. Those men were doing their duty and nothing more. This concept is highlighted in our church's confession. We hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And in paragraph 16 it says this. They who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to supererogate and to do more than God requires as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. In other words, this means that even the most godly men and women in the history of the church do not do all that God requires. There was only one. There was only one of those. Or as someone once said, even the best men are men at best. Now, the architects of the confession included this paragraph as a response to the Roman Catholic Church and their false teaching of the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit is a teaching where they believe that certain persons, such as Jesus, Mary, and the saints, were better than they needed to be, and that through them came a surplus of good works almost like a spiritual savings account that the church has rulership over, acts that were above and beyond what God requires, and so this surplus is stored up in this spiritual treasury, and then the Pope could take those acts and transfer their surplus to those poor, unworthy sinners who were uh, deficient. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says this, The treasury of the church is the infinite value which can never be exhausted, which Christ's merits have, borne, or, or, which Christ's merits have before God. This treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. They are truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. In the treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord and by His grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission the Father entrusted to them. In this way, they have, obtain, they have attained their own salvation and at the same time cooperated in saving their brothers in the unity of the mystical body. So you've got this Catholic doctrine of purgatory and this teaching says that these good works that are stored up can be 
transferred to those who are in purgatory to reduce their time of suffering so that they can be sprung out and released more quickly into heaven. Well, you ask, how does one acquire those merits? Well, it's through indulgences. If you don't know what indulgences are, those are payments to the church. In fact, one of the heresies that Martin Luther opposed in his 95 Theses was this doctrine of indulgences. That somehow a person can have works that exceed what God requires. That's problem number one. And that secondly, that people who are deficient in their works can benefit from the works of others who went above and beyond what God requires. In fact, out of Luther's 95 objections to the Roman church, 12 of them are about this issue right here. Presbyterian theologian A.A. A. Hodge says, Works of supererogation are in their own nature impossible under the moral law of God. In man's present state, even the most eminent saint is incapable of fully discharging all his obligations, much more, of course, of surpassing them. In other words, there will never be a surplus of works, and there cannot be. And certainly none that are meritorious for others. That's why we have Christ. Christ is the one whose works were meritorious for us. Not anybody else. And if Christ's works were meritorious for us, we do not have a deficiency as far as our salvation is concerned. He met the standard. We benefit from His work. So, I strayed from Scripture a little bit, talked a little bit about church history, about confessions, about the Catholic Church. But with all that in your head, let's go back to our text here. And think about this for a minute. Verse 17, verse 9. Does the master thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And the answer, of course, is no. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So this parable is about your attitude toward the master. Maybe you think there are parts of your life where you went above and beyond. And you're a little frustrated with God because, you know, in this situation you went above and beyond what he required of you. No, that never happened. <laughs> In fact, drawing upon our context, remember what we've been talking about? Forgiveness and forgiving someone 70 times 7 and the disciples saying, Lord, increase our faith. What if you forgave someone 70 times who sinned against you and you were so Christ-like toward this person, you never went above and beyond what God required? What if you sacrificed so much for another person no one even knows about it. You spent money to help this person. You gave your time to help this person. No one knows. There's no one patting you on the back. Only you and God know about this. And it was sacrificial and it wore you down. But you, you, you chose to do it. 
Was that an act above and beyond the will of God? No. You were only doing your duty. So what is your attitude to be as you serve Him? Is your attitude to be, Lord, You owe me for this one. Lord, I'm doing all this stuff over here. I better get some payback for this. Or is your attitude a humble, submissive slave who recognizes I am only doing my duty? Let's pray. Our Father, we owe You nothing and You have given us everything. And I thank You, Lord, that we do not have to rely on some silly creation like a treasury where we can draw good works from to be put in our account as if we don't have good works put into our account by the Lord Jesus Christ. As if we are not made righteous by Him. And so, Lord, may You be praised for the truth and may You be praised in our life as we as we serve you, as we humble ourselves, as we recognize our relationship is one of a slave to a master. In Jesus' name, amen.